Friends, will you be happy when Jesus returns? Yes, amen. It's an easy question in one sense, isn't it? We will be happy when Jesus returns. But I want you to consider, are you sure you will be happy when Jesus returns? What kind of things might make us happy to see Jesus come back? I can tell you suffering does, doesn't it? I think I am probably most acutely longing for Jesus to return in the middle of a CrossFit workout. When I am just dying, I'm like, please, Jesus, come back and take me. I don't want this anymore, right? That's pretty trivial, self-inflicted suffering. There's more severe suffering that causes us to long for Jesus to come back, isn't there? What reasons might make us, though, not want Jesus to come back? To wait a little bit? Or to be unsure about joy at his coming? I think sometimes if our circumstances are particularly pleasing in this life, we don't want this moment or this time period to end. And so we think subtly in our hearts, even without expressing it, I'd be okay if Jesus waited. Or if our spiritual state is not particularly in sync with the gospel, we might think, man, next week I'm going to do better at following Jesus. I sure hope he doesn't come back this week. For many of us, maybe the question of whether we're happy about Jesus coming back or not is out of sight and out of mind. It feels so abstract. Someday Jesus is coming. Probably not in my lifetime, so I don't need to really worry about it or think about it much. Friends, I ask that question because the return of Jesus is actually the backdrop to this entire text. See, when we read through this text, this exhortation, to timothy from paul our eyes are drawn rightly in some sense to this main exhortation preach the word in verse two but the backdrop to all of that is actually the return of jesus you see paul ends his little exhortation to timothy in verse eight where he says there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That on that day language is reference to when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And he says, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice that same language is in verse 1, where Paul starts out with this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing... And his kingdom. Notice Paul starts out talking about Jesus. And ends up talking about the Lord who is a reference to Jesus. And he says this Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. And he says the Lord is going to judge. Right? And he says it's by his appearing and his kingdom. And he says all those who love his appearing are going to be receiving this crown of righteousness. The technical word for this is an inclusio. It's basically starting and ending at the same spot to say, hey, there's something here that's impacting all of what's inside of it. The return of Jesus, Jesus appearing, as Paul calls it, is the backdrop to all of this 
text. In other words, his exhortation to Timothy to preach the word and everything that flows from it is in light of the return of Jesus. So the question for us should be, rightly, what does preaching from verse 2 and the return of Jesus from verses 1 and 8 have to do with one another? What do preaching and the return of Jesus have to do with one another? Here's what I want us to see from this text today. I think it's vitally important for us to see this, that your engagement and my engagement with Christian preaching has a direct impact on our joy at the return of Christ. How you engage with Christian preaching affects how happy you are when Jesus returns. I want to show us that from this text. We're going to look at this text in three parts, but Paul really kind of breaks it into these two paragraphs. If you have the ESV, it's already broken into those paragraphs for you. Verses 1 to 5... Verses 1 to 5 are really dealing with the how we preach. That's the exhortation. Preach the word, right? What does it look like? What does it have to do with us? And the second paragraph, verses 6 to 8, have to do with the why of preaching. Why is this so important? How does this connect to the return of Jesus and to my joy at the return of Jesus? Why does it matter how I engage with Christian preaching for me to be happy When Jesus comes back. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's start by looking where Paul starts at verses 1 and 2. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This charge has long struck readers of this letter as such a serious charge. Paul doesn't compound terms like this very often. And when he does, he's being really serious. He's giving a charge to Timothy that says, this is massively important. It's a charge that says preaching is serious because it happens in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. As we gather together to hear from the word of God, and as I proclaim the word of God to you, God is with us. This is happening in the presence of God, and he cares deeply about how he is presented. He cares deeply about how we respond to the reality of his glory. Preaching is in the presence of God, and therefore it is serious business. Preaching is also judged By Christ. I charge you in light of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. And that includes living and dead preachers and living and dead hearers, doesn't it? It It's serious because Jesus is going to judge preaching and going to judge our response to preaching. It is also serious because as we preach, we're always aware of these two facts that Paul lists, right? By his appearing, And by his kingdom. In other words, Jesus is going to return. That's where we're mainly emphasizing and thinking about today. And Jesus, his kingdom, he reigns, right? He is the king who's coming back. And when we preach, and when we listen to preaching, it's always in light of those realities. Even though it's 
week in and week out, kind of normal. We're used to it if we've been in the church for a long time. It's in light of God who is present, who is going to judge, and who is returning. So preaching is serious business. He wants Timothy to know that as he's giving this charge. I charge you in light of all of this seriousness to do this, Timothy, to preach. So verse 2, what is preaching? Paul gives nine total imperatives to Timothy. Preach the word, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then in verse 5, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Nine imperatives, nine commands that Paul gives to Timothy. All of them are tied up in preach the word. That's the main command. All of the rest are like taking that preaching and turning it a little bit at a time and looking at it from different angles. Preach the word is the main imperative. So what is preaching? When Paul says preach the word, he's talking about proclamation or heralding. See, sometimes we can think about preaching as like a lecture on some kind of theological stuff. Or sometimes we can think about it as storytelling. That's not what the biblical picture of preaching is. It's heralding the coming of the king. It's the difference between a newspaper article about a fire and actually being in the building while it's burning down, right? One's going to say, hey, this and X and Y and Z happened. The building burned down and here was the aftermath. It's going to give you the details, but it's a lot different if you're in the building while it's burning down, isn't it? And someone says fire and you run. Because you don't want to be burned down with the building. Preaching demands a response because it's heralding the coming of the king. This is how Jesus preached. In Matthew 4, he starts preaching. And what does he say? He says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Do something in light of this new reality that's come to light. That's what preaching is. It's proclaiming that there is a new reality that God has brought about. And that that causes us to do something in response. Paul says Christian preaching ought to be characterized as Paul, as Timothy preaches the word, he ought to be ready in season and out of season. It ought to be characterized, in other words, by an urgency on Timothy's part. Preaching is always urgent. Timothy is called to be ready in season and out of season. And that could have to do with Timothy's mood and availability, whether he's feeling it or not, or those kind of things. It more likely has to do with how Timothy's hearers are responding. Preach when people want to hear. Preach when people don't want to hear. Preach regardless, because the message you have, Timothy, that Jesus died and rose again and is coming back is so urgent, it must be told. It can't wait till next week. It can't wait till next month. Preaching is to be urgent to be Christian preaching. Not only that, but Paul says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Verse 2, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. These three terms are getting at the pastoral nature of preaching. Preaching, in other words, is meant to accomplish something in the hearts of the hearers. Reprove, rebuke, exhort are all terms that are talking about something happening in the people who hear. Reproving has to do with convincing someone that their view of God is not according to scripture. 
This is the language that Paul uses in Titus when he talks about elders being able to give instruction in sound teaching and to rebuke those who contradict it. That rebuke and reprove are translated pretty closely typically, but that's the same word. He's talking about correcting false doctrine. He's talking about correcting false doctrine in his hearers with the goal towards producing fruit in them. Rebuking is the language of what Jesus did to the wind and the waves when the storm was crashing in on their boat as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. He rebuked the storm and it was silenced. Rebuke has to do with what Jesus did to demons who were possessing people. He rebuked them, cast them out, silenced them. It has to do with stopping false teaching, stopping false doctrine from spreading. Not only that, but exhorting. This is the one we tend to like a little bit more because it's not as harsh as the other two. But exhorting to hear the word of the Lord, hear the promises and obey them. Obey the commands. Trust in the promises. That's exhortation. All of these have pastoral aims. See, preaching is done in the context of real sinners in need of real grace. It's meant to accomplish something in those who hear. Not merely to be talking. Not merely to be passive listening, but meant to doing something, to be doing something. Not only should it be urgent, not only should it be pastoral, but it should be patient. Right? Paul points that out in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This one is one of the harder things to do while preaching. But it's a call to be patient, to let the word and the spirit do the work. What happens when I preach to you or when someone else preaches to you? When we hear preaching, what is happening is we are hearing the word of the Lord. And as the word of the Lord comes into our minds and into our hearts, the spirit takes that word and convicts us of sin and encourages us in our faith, strengthens us in our faith, produces in us the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of righteousness. As that happens, the one preaching must be patient to let that happen, right? Paul is exhorting Timothy, be patient in your proclaiming the word. Not only that, but he says, with complete patience, verse 2, and teaching. Preaching, in other words, should be understandable. Should be understandable. Teaching should accompany preaching. Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But he didn't just leave it there, right? He explained in his ministry what the kingdom of God was like through parables, through examples. He explained and demonstrated through his ministry what repentance looks like. So that those who heard the heralding, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, could obey. Preaching, in other words, includes both heralding And explaining or teaching. So Paul is exhorting Timothy. I charge you to do all these things. To preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort. With complete patience and teaching. That's Christian preaching in a nutshell. Now you might be asking. That's all well and good. But what does that have to do with me? Right? I'm not preaching this text to a bunch of preachers. Who are preparing to preach it. If that's never you, what does it have to do with you? 
That's an important question to ask. The aim of preaching is to do something to hearers. Which means that preaching always has hearers, right? Those who listen. When we preach, we're not preaching to an empty room. I could get up here and have given this message on Friday to no one here and it would not be Christian preaching. It would be practicing what I'm going to say, but it would not be Christian preaching in the way that is meant to be Christian preaching, which is God's word and God's spirit doing something in the heart of those who hear. What that means is the command to preach, what it has to do with you, is Paul thought this was so important that he gave this as the last and boldest command to his disciple Timothy. Preach the word. And implied in that command is a command for those who hear to listen up. To hear. To hear carefully. To listen like their faith depended on it. We might say then that Paul is giving this charge. Listen to this. I charge you, verse 1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, hear the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Receive reproof. Receive rebuke. Receive exhortation with complete patience and teachability. Right? That's the other side of the coin to what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do. By exhorting Timothy this way, by saying, I'm charging you to preach the word. He's saying to those who hear Timothy, I'm charging you to listen to the word. And that's what he's saying to you and I this morning as well. By charging me to preach the word, he's charging you to listen to the word. He's charging us all to be listeners. Not only those who listen to preaching, but preachers themselves too. Notice Paul says, Preach what? Preach not your own ideas. Preach not what's popular or what's current events. Preach the word. The way Timothy and the way preachers throughout the centuries have preached the word is by first listening to the word. Right? So preachers have to listen too, not just hearers of preaching. Paul is saying, preach the word. And in saying that, he's saying preachers need to preach and hearers need to hear. The problem, though, that he encounters at Ephesus, that Timothy encounters, and the problem we often encounter ourselves is that we're not naturally good listeners. That includes me as a preacher. I'm not naturally a good listener either. We're not naturally good listeners. We see that in verses 3 to 5. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Looking back at verse 3, look at what Paul starts verse 3 with. He starts with the word for, which means he's saying, Timothy, preach the word for or because. Back in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Preach the word because people won't listen. 
Why would Paul say that? Why preach? Because people won't listen. To answer that question, we've got to dig deeper into what corrupts our ability to listen. And we see it there. We see it there in verse 3. People will not endure sound teaching. Why? Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, what drives listeners? It's their own passions, their own desires. And because we are sinners, because we have been corrupted by sin, what has happened to our desires? They are corrupted as well, right? So when we look to our own desires and say, what do I want to hear? We're looking to sin-corrupted desires, which tend towards desiring evil or taking what God has given that's good and making it an idol or just completely ignoring God and living in creation as if God was not a factor. We do that because our desires have been corrupted by sin And so when we let those desires run what we look for in Christian preaching, we actually end up being terrible listeners. Because what we do is we decide what we want to hear, and then we look for someone who will say that. Right? That's what Paul is talking about in here. They have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they start with, where, do, where am I? What do I like? What do I want? What do I need? And then they look for someone who will do that. When that happens, disaster follows. What does he say in verse 4? He says, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, you might think, that's a danger for other churches. That's not a danger for us. But friends, I want to tell you that that can be a danger even for sojourners. Even for us. Here's how it can work. First of all, none of us are particularly happy to be reproved, to be rebuked, to be exhorted. I'm not. And if you are, you're weird. And the thing is, I'm commanded here in scripture to do that. God's word does not tell us what we want to hear all the time. Because we are not holy like God is holy. We are sinners driven by sinful desires often. The passions of our flesh wage war within us. We overcome by the power of the spirit, but that is a painful process sometimes. So one way that this can happen and manifest itself at sojourners is I can say something from up here that you really don't like that's in God's word. And you can conclude, man, I don't want to listen to that. And you can reject it and not hear the word of the Lord. Not only that, though, I'm getting familiar enough with you and I will as time goes on. And Lord willing, as he grants me more years as your pastor, to know what you don't want to hear. I'm also getting familiar enough with you to know what you want to hear. I know things I can preach on or things I can say that'll get maybe a little more amen and a little more head nod. I know some of your particular theological hobby horses. Some of you share the same hobby horse as me. And it's tempting as a preacher 
to preach to that, right? I want to lean into texts that are going to make my congregation like me and are going to make my congregation happy versus leaning into texts or things that are going to make me and my congregation pretty displeased. Not based on whether they're true from God's word or not, but based on how people will react. This creates a self-perpetuating cycle, right? A feedback loop. If I tell you what you want to hear, you like me more. And if you like me more, I'm more likely to tell you what you want to hear. That's how this works. It's a danger, friends, even for us. By God's grace, I pray that we avoid this danger. And I want to talk about some ways we can avoid it. But I want you to see that it is a real danger. This is not something out there for those crazy people who don't like expository preaching. This is right here for us, too. If I itch, itching ears, it creates this feedback loop that creates an incredible danger for us. But friends, the solution that we see in this text, that we've seen already in 2 Timothy, actually, is that we need to have our desires, both my desire to be liked and your desire to hear what you want to hear, We need to have those desires brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to have those desires brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Think about this pattern that we saw already in the text of scripture. Right? We saw in chapter 3 this danger of self-love. Those who were driven by their desire to love themselves and to love the things of this world rather than loving God. Right? Driven by that desire... They led others astray. We saw that in the first half of chapter 3. What was Paul's response to that for Timothy? His response was, as for you, Timothy, you followed me as I've followed Christ. And as for you, Timothy, you've followed the sound words that you've heard even from an infant. This scripture that is breathed out by God that is profitable to make you wise for salvation, right? The scripture that is breathed out by God that is profitable to equip you for every good work. So in other words, the antidote to these desires that pull us away from God and his word is the faithfulness of God and his word. That's what Paul is showing Timothy here. In spite of all this, Timothy, because of all this, Timothy, for, in verse 3, preach the word for or because... People won't listen because that's what they need to learn to listen. This is why he goes where he goes in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, As for you, again, contrary to these people that are led astray by their various desires, as for you, Timothy, as for you, verse 5, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. As for you, in other words, keep preaching the word. If Timothy keeps preaching the word, it's going to need him to be sober-minded, right? This is a call to keep calm. To keep sober-minded, to keep clear thinking about what's really going to bring change in these people. Keep calm, Timothy, and preach the word, Paul says. Not only that, but he's going to have to endure suffering. If he continues to preach the word to a people who don't want to preach the word, and who acquire teachers for their own Uh, after their own passions and who want their ears itched, he's going to have more suffering, not less. 
But Paul says, endure suffering, Timothy, and preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. Think about it this way. If the people Timothy has been given to shepherd are so oppositional to the word of God, it's likely that they don't even know Jesus. So what does Timothy have to do? The hard work of evangelizing them. The hard work of leading them to come to know the one who truly changes hearts. Right? Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. Continue preaching the word. And last but not least, fulfill your ministry. Timothy fulfills his ministry that he's been given by God. By preaching the word. This is a call for Timothy as a preacher to do this. This is a call for all preachers, but also for all hearers. In light of our tendency to stray from the word of God, in light of our tendency to be driven by our own passions, to acquire people who will tell us what we want to hear. Be sober-minded, see through the fog of your own self-desires, and continue listening to the word. Continue hearing it. When you hear reproof, rebuke, exhortation that you don't like, remember, judge rightly, is it from the word? And if it is, respond As if it's God speaking to you. Keep calm and hear the word. Endure suffering. And hear the word. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. You might be wondering. How does that. What does that have to do with hearing? What does that have to do with hearing? This. Friends. Is where. Hearing the word of God. Connects. To. The return of Jesus and your happiness at the return of Jesus. Think about this for a minute. When Paul says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. What is Timothy's ministry? It's to preach the word, right? Why does he preach the word? He's been given to the church as a preacher. Paul even says, do the work of an evangelist. We've heard that language somewhere else. Spoken to the church at Ephesus. I'm thinking about Ephesians 4. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about this. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. Paul writes this. And he, being Jesus, gave, to, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints... For the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Paul in his lovely Pauline sentences goes on. But that's far enough for us to see. What I think we need to see. Right? He's given preachers. He's given evangelists. He's given shepherds and teachers etc. To do what? To equip the saints. For the work of ministry. So Timothy's ministry. Is to preach the word. To equip the saints. For the work of ministry, right? The word is sufficient to do this. As we saw last week in in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Timothy does is he preaches the word. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And it's the word that he preaches. Because it's the word that equips. This is Timothy's ministry. This is what Paul means when he says Timothy fulfill your ministry. 
Pastors then fulfill our ministry to equip the saints to be able to fulfill theirs. That's the goal of preaching, is to fit you for ministry. A ministry, as we've seen in 2 Timothy and beyond, of disciple-making, right? Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey that all I've commanded you, baptizing them in my name. The saints are given the work of disciple-making as they are disciples of Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. And the goal of Christian preaching is to equip you to be able to do that, to be able to fulfill the ministry that God has given you. So we listen, we hear the word, we hear the word for the sake of being equipped. And this is vital. Why? Because those who fulfilled their ministry will be happy when Jesus returns. That's where Paul is going with this in verses 6 to 8. He's moving now from what do you do to why do you do it? Look at verses 6 to 8 again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the face. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So friends, he gives Timothy again, another word for in verse six. Why should you preach Timothy? Because all of this. Because I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. What he's saying is I'm close to dying. The time is short for me to remain on this earth. Therefore, you preach the word and your hearers hear the word so that they can be equipped for the work of the ministry. Because Paul's not going to be able to do it much longer, right? He is done. Praise the Lord. He is finished well, but he is done. The current generation is passing away. And Paul here is handing the baton to Timothy. And so for us as those of us who preach and for those of us who hear, we do both of those things for the sake of being equipped for this time because the current generation is passing away. I wonder if you can remember who led you to Christ. Who was Timothy, or who was Paul, excuse me, for you as he was for Timothy? Who led you to Christ? Who brought you to know the things of God? And what would they think about your ability to continue that legacy once they're gone? That's what Paul is doing here, right? He's saying, Timothy, you've got to continue this legacy because I'm not long left for this world. Paul was executed shortly after he wrote this letter. And Timothy continued his ministry. Timothy continued to fulfill the ministry he'd been given to equip others to fulfill theirs. All the way down to you and I. Will the legacy of the gospel, will your lineage die with you? Are you equipped? Are you listening to be equipped? That's the first motivation. The time is short. The second motivation for preaching and listening this way, for engaging in Christian preaching, is that God's grace is sufficient for us to finish the race. That's what Paul says in verse 7, right? Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have 
kept the faith. This is brief language that he also uses in chapter 2. When he says the Christian life is like being a soldier. The Christian life is like being a runner in a race. The Christian life is like being a farmer. He says all these things are hard work. But the work is worth it because the reward is great. And the work is doable because the grace of Christ is sufficient. Right? First, or Second Timothy 2.1. He says be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here he's saying, Timothy, I've done this. Preach because this is how I did it. This is how I fulfilled my ministry. I faithfully proclaimed the word of the Lord in season and out of season. This is how others faithfully kept the faith, finished the race, fought the good fight. They heard and listened to the word. They heard the promises of God, told them again and again, and they believed those promises. So Timothy, the grace is sufficient for you. Not only that, but verse 8. The reward is great. Paul says again in verse 8, Henceforth, it's all done. All I've got left to do is claim the prize. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award this crown to Timothy, not be, or to Paul, excuse me, not because he merits it by his good works. This crown of righteousness is evidence that Paul has kept the faith, which means continuing to trust in the Lord Jesus, not walking away from the path of the truth, not walking away from trusting in the goodness of Jesus. I've kept the faith, he says. I've finished the race. This crown then of righteousness is going to be awarded to me. And he also says, This last little bit, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's who receives the crown of righteousness. Those who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are happy when Jesus returns. What makes us happy when Jesus returns? It's the expectation that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? It's the fulfilling of the ministry that we've been given. 1 John 2 tells us to abide in Jesus so that we don't shrink away from him at his coming. If we are not abiding in Christ, if we are not being equipped by the scriptures to be faithful, to follow him now, then when he returns, we will shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's what Paul is getting at here. All of this preaching the word, all this word ministry is meant to prepare saints to meet Jesus. That's what preachers ultimately do. That's what we're doing week in and week out. When we gather and we hear the word of the Lord, we're being prepared to meet Jesus. And to be happy at meeting Jesus. To rejoice at his coming. To be filled with joy when the king returns because we've been faithful and we've trusted in his promises to be filled with joy when he returns because we know the truth that it's not by what we do but by his grace and so when he comes we don't fear that we haven't done enough we trust and know that he has done everything right we're filled with joy when he comes because we know these things so friends what we see in here today what i want you to walk away with today is that Christian preaching is a means of grace that God has given us. 
A means of grace that he's given us to fit us for his kingdom. To prepare us to meet Jesus. That's what's happening every week. And so every week, you need to ask yourself, not did I like what I heard? But did what I hear grow in me a love for Christ's appearing? Did what I hear grow in me an expectation that Jesus is coming and that that's good news for me and for all who are found in Christ Jesus. And if it's true that that's what you're hearing week in and week out, and I hope by God's grace it is, then you've got to listen like your joy depends on it. Right? And I've got to preach like our joy depends on it. Every week that's what we do. And by God's grace, week by week, Slowly over time, he forms in us a joy at Christ's return. This doesn't happen overnight. But friends, if you, God gives me 10 years with you, we'll have heard over 500 sermons. If God gives me 20 years, that's over 1,000 sermons. If God gives me longer, that's even more. Over that time, God will form in us a joy at his coming. And when Jesus returns, we will look at him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll be filled with happiness. And we'll be able to say, yes, I love his appearing. That's my prayer for you and my prayer for me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are coming back for us. That one day you will return and every tear will be wiped from every eye. And there will be no death or dying. Death will have been finally and decisively defeated. One day you are returning. And we will be with you and see you face to face. And be filled with joy everlasting. Jesus, we struggle to live in light of these truths. It is hard, but you've given us the gift of your word and you've given us the gift of gathering together week by week and hearing your word proclaimed. And so I pray that you would help us listen like our joy depends on it. That you would help give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, and that the, the seed of your word as it falls into the soil of our heart would grow and bear fruit. It would make us more like you and equip us to fulfill the ministries you've given us. It's only by your spirit that these things happen. So we pray that you would do them in us even now. Amen.